it was loud and it was aggressive and it was amazing. Yeah. And I wanted to go to every matinee that I could get to from that point moving forward. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. everyone, this is James. On this episode, I talked to a dear friend of mine, Mark Lambert, most recently of Sharks Come Cruising, which is a band that I've also had the opportunity to play in. For this interview, Mark took out, uh, let's call it his memory chest, that was full of flyers and cassettes and seven inches from his time playing in punk bands. You'll probably hear us ruffling through some of those things. We had a great time talking about the late 80s and 90s Providence scene, some early recordings he did with Joe Booty and Keith Souza, who's gone on to own Machines with Magnets, and how we started a punk rock sea shanty band. Enjoy the episode, and please don't forget to subscribe. Can you talk a little bit about where where you grew up in Rhode Island? I grew up in Warwick, Rhode Island, in uh, but the Buttonwood section of Warwick, which Warwick's pretty big. I think Warwick is... The second or third largest city in Rhode Island. It's like pretty okay. pretty big. I think uh, Cranston, Providence. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's big. So you know, broken out into neighborhoods. And I grew up in Buttonwoods. All right. And did your did your parents listen to a lot of music when you were growing <clears> up? <throat> My old man loved loves music still to this day. Uh, it was a few times that like he would actually let us stay up beyond our bedtime. It was like if some kind of special was happening on TV, the Grammys or. Oh, okay. Uh, or like, like any know, music related. Yeah, yeah. He we, and he would like let us watch, you know, yeah. things that were on television. Uh, he brought me to my first like live music thing that I had ever seen. It was uh, the Chevy Fest in Quonset, which is like North Kingstown. When was when that was, was that? That was probably early to mid eighties, um, like probably like eighty four, eighty five, and. Chuck Berry played and the Beach Boys played. It was like this free thing that Chevy did. I don't even know what the connection was. Quantum. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, maybe they were like importing cars down there. I don't, I don't even know, but they did this free festival. I think they only, only did it one year. It might have been two years, but uh, that was like the first kind of show I ever saw. Pretty interesting. And so, yeah, my, my, my dad more so than my mom, but my dad, uh, a huge soul music fan, a huge Motown fan. Um, when he was stationed, uh, he went to Germany uh, during Vietnam, and he has a lot of great stories and records that he brought back from Germany, like bands, German bands that were doing like Motown songs and soul really? songs. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he he loves music. We still go to concerts to this day. I still take my old man to shows. That's great. How about, do you have siblings or? Yep. One brother who's two years older than me. When we were in high school, the very, very early days of junior high and high school, we were both skateboarding at the same time. And skateboarding was really my entry into punk rock. And my brother at that time also was interested in some of those same bands. Like then, then it would have been like Black Flag, the Dead Kennedys. And I think he and 
he liked it because it was part of the skateboard culture, but it didn't really go anywhere beyond that, where I, like, I ate it up the second I started hearing these bands. I was like, I need to hear more of whatever this is. I need to get TSOL, like, was a huge influence then. I, and it was difficult to find the music. You couldn't get it. You, ha- you know, you had one outlet, which was basically the mall. To, oh, okay. And you had to yeah. hope that there was, like, you know, or like we had a few other record stores in town, but nobody was getting those kind of records. You had to get them, copy them from somebody else because somebody had a dupe cassette or something. Talking about growing up in, in war, were there other kids that that were into this type of music that you connected with, or what, yeah. did you have to to travel to no, other towns? No, there were there were kids in my neighborhood, and it was all from skateboarding. So like, I went from the, my bubble in elementary school where. Um, I really, I, I really started skating in junior high, and when I got to junior high, and it, there were more kids, a bigger pool of kids. Suddenly, I realized that there were these other kids that lived fairly close to me that were also skateboarding, that were already ahead of the curve as far as music went. They like, they were already listening to the Misfits and you know the Dead Kennedys and TSOL and. They were the ones who I kind of glommed onto. They were actually the guys that I started my first band with. What was the first band you played in? <laughs> um, the first band I played in was this band called The End, which is kind of ironic, right? Yeah. <laughs> the End was at the beginning. And uh, how old are you when you started? I was a this? freshman in high school. So, however, however old you are there, 15, I guess. Okay. Um, I started... had, had you been playing music before that? Like, how no. did you how did you no. start playing music? I I got in with these group of guys that skateboarded and it was almost just like this. Of course, we're going to start a band like there are four of us that, you know, want to do this. And everybody basically picked an instrument. They were like, yeah, OK, I, I'll play guitar. I have a guitar. I'll play guitar. And then another guy was like, I have a guitar, but I can take two strings off. And that's a bass. Seriously, that's seriously. <laughs> that was so. I'll I'll just play a six string guitar with the top four strings, and I'll be the bass guitar. And Did, were they bass no. strings? They were okay. Right. <laughs> nope. Um, and then uh, one guy was like kind of the leader of it. This guy Brian Cherry. He wanted to be the singer, and I came to the party late, and so I was going to be the drummer. And I had never really played any drums in my life, maybe a little tiny bit in junior high when I was like in the school band or something. Um, I'm sure that there are, like, we couldn't get shows. There was like no, there is no place that would ever allow for like these bands that we were playing in to play. What, so we why is that? Like because of the type of music? Well, we, were, of we were in high school. We were horrible. Really not good at all. Yeah. Um, was it the trying to emulate the types of bands you were just talking about, like Black Flag? And was it like what, what yeah, were your musical influences I, I so. at so, that time? So by that time, so like, you know, this was probably 88, 89. And... I, I have a very vivid memory of being in somebody's basement, Brian Cherry's basement. We had that misfit skull. You know, he hand painted that misfit skull on his ba- on his basement wall. I remember being down there, and they were playing Fugazi's first EP, which went on to be thirteen songs. Yep. 
Like that was on nonstop play. And Operation Ivy was the other, like Operation Ivy's Energy. That was the other. Those two records at that time were being played nonstop. I don't know if we were trying to emulate those bands. I mean, we weren't good enough. We both of those bands are like, yeah, tremendously yeah. <laughs> talented, kind of iconic. <clears throat> but you know, we it was definitely. I mean, Seven Seconds. The crew was probably something that when we listened to that record, we were like. I think we can do that. I think we can get close to that. Um, definitely fast, angry, punk rock. Were you playing shows at this time? All basement shows. So we live with this. Uh, we, we went to high school with this guy, Derek Hirons, and he used to do shows in his basement live at Hirons. Did he book a lot of shows no, for other bands, was, or was it, it was just all? It was all just bands from the neighborhood. So uh, Derek Hirons, Live at Hirons, uh, Second Subject was one of the bands. Cucumber Face, uh, Concrete Rectum, all Fruitland, right. Retrospect, and Run. I was in this band called Run. Um, that was after the cutthroat but all of this stuff was happening like right around the same time but we we had to do shows <clears throat> in basements because really no club would have us. the only club that would even possibly give a band a show would be as220 and that's because they were government funded and they had to like to keep their grants we their story was to keep their grants we always had that they had to let anybody play so that's where my first shows were done at as220 on Richmond Street, when it was above Babyhead, was they, they used to be up, upstairs from Babyhead. So, with that though, like, how would you describe that scene? Like, were there, um, like, would you trade shows with these other bands or <clears throat> not really? Like, we was always it still all, like a connected like, group of, of everybody bands? who was in these bands we were going to high school with. So, it was like probably a pool of, you know, 15. 20 people who were just like rotating in and out and bands were dissolving and getting back together. And, but we, <clears throat> yeah, it sounds like you were already in three right. or four bands. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Like I guarantee of these bands listed on this flyer, there was probably one person that was in all of them, you know? Yeah. Um, the one who could actually play okay. their instrument. Yeah. specific story where I was listening to a lot of New York hardcore um, and, you know, going to a lot of shows and I wrote to a bunch of bands from New York from a compilation called Look at All the Children Now. And one of the bands wrote back to me, this, this band called Go. And I said, I wrote to them and basically said, if you're ever in Providence, because we knew that we weren't going to be able to play in clubs. So we had to get in touch with the bands and then figure out what we were going to do with it. We were making our own shows. Okay. So they got in touch and they said, yeah, we need a show in Providence. And we didn't have a venue to do it at. So we decided we were going to do it at our singer in our singer's garage. He had like this big garage. He lived in 
Warwick Neck, which is like kind of a more affluent section of Warwick, a bigger house, a big two-car garage that every band practiced in, we decided we were going to do a show in his garage with Going Bad Trip. And we started putting flyers up around Providence saying, Going Bad Trip, straight out of New York, July 7th, only $3. And then... That's my parents' phone number. We just we just put the for more info, call us, me and this guy Jay that I was playing music with. And basically, if somebody called, we'd be like, Yeah, they're playing in a garage in Warwick, and we'd give them directions and they would they would come down. Um so anyway, the, the point of the story is that I got a phone call from this guy, uh I think his name was Derek. He played in a band called Voice of Reason in Cranston with Terry, uh, Terry, who now is the one of the owners at the Scurvy Dog. They played in this band and they got in touch and they said, Hey, where are you doing the show? We said in our friend's garage. I said, Well, we have a venue that you could have the show at. And we weren't really sure if we wanted to do it at a venue. Doing it in the garage seemed like a good idea, but we thought the guys from Going Bad Trip would rather play at a venue yeah, than in somebody's a garage. Band. Exactly. And they had, they had something to do with this space called Under the Hut, which was under the Skate Hut in Providence, right next to Wes's Rib House, old factory. There was a skate park upstairs and this space downstairs where for one magical summer, people got in touch and they booked a decent amount of shows in that space. I mean, I know for a fact I saw Rorschach there. Um, I saw Animal Crackers there who Ted Leo was in at the time. I believe, I believe that story is correct. I've heard rumors that Fugazi either was booked there and Operation Ivy also, but I think they also, um, might've played at Babyhead around that time. So there was, there was just, it was a very exciting time for me and they were doing a lot of shows in that space. And that was probably, that was probably like my first actual like not in somebody's basement or not in somebody's garage like we they had a pa we went and we set up yeah you weren't playing in these clubs but were you going to a lot of shows mm-hmm. like was it like was the rhode island scene starting to kind of oh it wasn't oh. it wasn't starting it was already going yeah okay, okay. um so can you talk more about that like who were yeah, you going so, to see and- so my first show i went up to a matinee I, I think it was Babyhead by that time. I'd be surprised if it was still a rocket. Um, and it was Wrecking Crew and Skinned Alive and another Boston hardcore band, I think, called Redline. And that, like, that experience just blew my mind. I had really? never seen or experienced anything like this in my life. It was just like, there could have been 50 people there, but as far as I was concerned, there was like 5,000. And it was loud, and it was aggressive, and it was amazing. Yeah. And I wanted to go to every matinee that I could get to from that point moving forward. And it was great because, you know, we're in high school. We can't go to the late shows, and yeah. all of these bands are coming through and playing, you know, 3 p.m. to... 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And it was always a three-band bill and really good bands from out of town. Yeah. Um, at that time, the clubs that I can remember were Babyhead, 
the living room on promenade. That was my next question of where. <laughs> right, before before we moved to Rathbone. And it was, I mean, the living room was downtown before that, but that yeah, was yeah, way okay. before my time. I only yeah, went to two shows at the Promenade Street, the Big Bubble. They call it the Big Bubble Living Room because it had a big bubble window in the front. Yeah. Um, I only went to two shows there. I saw Verbal Assault and I saw, uh, it was two separate shows. Verbal Assault, I forget who else played with Verbal Assault. The Stench, I think, and somebody else. American Standard, maybe? And the second show that I saw was um, Seven Seconds and Voice of Reason, <laughs> the guys that asked us to do that show under the HUD. This is a great flyer. So this is like what you were asking as far as like who was doing anything. So Skin Alive, Intent to Injure. I think Intent to Injure was New Bedford. Okay. Um, Gas Face. I'm not sure where they were from. And and Drop Dead. How crazy wow. is that? What year is this? Uh, you know... People weren't good about putting yeah, dates on, yeah. so I don't. I can tell you the show is at Confetti's, which was a dance club. It's still there. It's on Charles Street. That Confetti's isn't there. It's something else. What's the now. space? It's across from Walmart. The space right across from Walmart, um, and they would do shows on Sundays. They would do metal shows. So, were you? I see from these flyers that you're there's some patterns of who you're playing with. Did, yeah. did you start to, to do a lot of shows with the same people? They wanted nothing to do with us. No, no. <laughs> what do you mean? Like the, the other bands were yeah, not, they were not. Yeah. <laughs> we, we were just like these young, we were like these young kids that like, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of camaraderie. I mean, maybe amongst like skinned alive and are we dead yet? And the worst, maybe there was, but they didn't really want anything to do with mm-hmm. us. Why do you feel you were getting added to those shows? Like, were you drawing? Were you because I was persistent? I I just I I think it was like you know you'd give your demo to whoever would take it, and then you would you'd be out at a show, and you'd say, "Do you have any shows?" And they would say, "Oh yeah, we got this thing coming up." This is funny because this is at AS two twenty. Yeah, if you look at the um, the address, it's Richmond Street. Yeah. Yeah, 71 Richmond Street. So, in handwriting, located above Babyhead. <laughs> and now we would say located above yeah. where Babyhead used to be. Exactly. Um, so, we were just, we. I think I would, was asking anybody who was anybody if, you know, they could throw yeah, us okay. on shows. Were you going? Were you just going to a lot of shows and yeah, just I mean, like your, your weekends I mean, were. Every, yeah, every weekend just, was. I mean, you'd look at. At the time, there were two papers. It was the new paper and the nice paper. The new paper, which went on to be the Phoenix. I mean, you'd look at the ads every single weekend. It was like, no joke. It was like Gorilla Biscuits, Sick of It All, Killing Time. Like, there wasn't a Sunday that was coming by that you didn't want to be there for that band. It was... And I don't know how long that went on. I mean, it's, it seemed like an eternity to me. But, like, then it came to a point where you got to know, like, I got to know the people at Babyhead. And it was like, well, call the guy who books there. Yeah. And and then I would call every single week. And I would say, do you have a show? Can you throw us on a show? But this is the one that, like, when I think about my personal, like, when things started getting a little bit more real for me, it was definitely this show. And I got this. So this was Snuff, Sam I Am, The Worst, 
and whatever band I was playing in at the time, it might have been Run, it might have been somebody else. So in the nice paper, Rob Phelps had an article um, called Know Your Enemy. I forget what it was called. It was called Punk and Disorderly, and then it was called Know Your Enemy. And he did a really good job of, like, making fun of everybody. He, that, like, that was the intent of the, so the it, column was just to kind of yeah, take so, jabs at, at all right, so music. I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Rob, is, Rob is, lives in Brooklyn, I think, now. Um, I have since connected with him one time and it seems like he's probably not, he's like mellowed in his old age. But so this is the review of that. Are we dead yet? Guilt trip show. I think at yeah, Christmas night. So he says, are we dead yet? Guilt trip. Jeepers crow run club baby head Christmas night. And I am at the head the head baby head drinking five cent drafts how they get five cent drafts like what were they thinking i should feel ashamed instead i felt hungover too much golden anniversary and no good reason run started things off with some pretty potent minimal marsh hardcore metal they were okay until the ll cool j cool j cover let's get something straight a bunch of dorky white kids trying to play a cover of a rap song is embarrassing. Just stop. You look retarded. Jeepers Crow played poppy college rock, which was okay. Just kind of boring. Guilt Trip epitomized homie hardcore. The faster straight ahead hard hardcore was good. The funky stuff seemed contrived. Are We Dead Yet was better than last time. But the rapping gets on my nerves. I really dig the straight metal and hardcore, but all this funky shit is really driving me fucking crazy. Where am I anyway? <laughs> so that, what what paper was this in? So again? this this was in a paper called the Nice Paper. So the, the new paper was like that was like kind of the more I don't want to say corporate, but like it was like the more like uh legitimate paper yeah. but i think there was a riff in the staff somebody else could tell that story better and a bunch of the staff decided they were going to start this other weekly called the nice paper and the nice paper like anything went i mean they were like people were probably picking it up just to read rob's articles like um these some of these pictures are funny this is that's billy bouchard from uh went on to be in water dog Signed to Atlantic Records is yeah. now oddly enough the bass player for Sam I Am. <laughs> yeah, are there any any other instances such as that where people that were part of this this scene that that went on and well, I mean, I think the biggest Providence story to be told is Drop Dead. I mean, Drop Dead started right around um, this same time, but they went on to do amazing international things. I mean, yeah. when you want, if you want to talk about, I mean like a band that, yeah, they might not be on like my parents radar, yeah. but as far as like a musician goes, like, you know, anybody who's into anything slightly heavy, like they are the band that like, and they're yeah, still they're doing it. Yeah. They're, they're still, still playing. When did you first start to, to tour? That wasn't until uh return around. And when uh, was this? October of 94.
Uh, started, it, it was from the ashes of Downtide. So our first practice was in the basement of a house they were renting in Bonnet Shores. Yeah. Were there um, a lot of practice spaces at that time? Or was it yeah, kind of difficult? A, every band them? had a... I never practiced in Providence. I heard way too many horror stories about everybody getting their gear ripped off. So I, uh, okay. I never felt comfortable about getting a space in the city. Um, and I was still living in Warwick. So there yeah. was a there was a Red Cross, a historic Red Cross house that they, we rented a garage for a while and practiced in there. And then with return around, we practiced inside the house. We had like a little, a little space inside the house. How would you describe return around? Like who were your influences or and things totally got, to, I finally got to like get rid of all of this metal baggage that had been like, I'd been carrying on like for years and years and years, like just cause I wanted to play music. I had to play with these guys like that would always want to move it to like this metal or this metal funk. I mean, you got to understand the metal funk thing was like in 1990 to 19, you know, 1989 to 1992, everything was that Wawa, early chili peppers, like everybody wanted that groove, but they also wanted to be heavy and, here I was a kid who grew up going to horror coaches. I just wanted to like scream my brains out. Yeah. And it was always a mismatch. Like if you listen to the downtown records, it, 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 sound, it doesn't sound like a good fit. I mean, it never did. Finally, when I, when we started return around, I felt like, okay. And my music taste had changed. Yeah, like so I was listening to a lot more bouncing souls and like East coast, hardcore um wet a lot of west coast punk rock and the drummer for return around eddie no, no effects he lived and died by no effects and good riddance and he that was his drumming style so like i finally felt like we had settled in with something that was like a really good it was a really good solid band what did you do with the band like did you how did you do some recording did, yeah you know, at that point in time, I had been, you know, in the studio a dozen times with all of the other bands. So um, it looks like we did our first 7-inch with Joe Moody at Danger. Rest in peace. Um, and this says... Where, where was where was that? Can you talk uh, Danger that? is... Um, off of Eddie Street, I think it's Sales was the was the uh, road that it, that he was on, and Joe recorded everybody that was in the circles where we were recording Danger Studios. They did the Kilgore records. They did the uh, I'm not sure if the Skin to Live records were done there, but he just he was the guy. If you were going to if you, you were going to do a record and you were like slightly heavy, then you would record with Joe. Um, and th this record was done in 95. So the first seven inch that return around did was in 1995, two years after we, we probably were saving up money to, to actually do the recording and do the record. Yeah. Um, but yeah, everything was, you recorded it on your own. You figured out how to press a seven inch on your own. Brian Simmons from atomic action. He's the one who helped me lay this, this thing out. He used to work at Kinko's in Middletown. Oh, okay. And I, called him or wrote him a letter and I said, I know you do records and I need to put together artwork for a cover. 
And he said, come to Kinko's, I'll help you out. Like, we got on a computer and we did some computer, that we whatever we did. Oh, so you didn't know him personally before that? You just knew that he... No, I didn't was, know him personally. ...was running his label and... Yep, I knew that he... I only, like, I knew that he put out a lot of records that I really liked. Um, yeah, like who? Like who uh, well, Brian's interesting character because he, you know, he, I, there was a certain amount of... I mean, Verbal Assault stuff was probably my introduction to him by seeing verbal assault uh, he would be there selling his records but he put out records from bands from all over the country it wasn't just Rhode Island band I mean, I, a lot of Newport bands so he was from Middletown and grew up in that Newport scene which was even though it was very close to Providence very very different than Providence I didn't go to a lot of shows down there but there were a lot of great bands uh, Uber Alice Backwash um, one time shotgun, they would play up here also. Yeah. Um, but you, you feel that those, those shows were more sporadic that it wasn't necessarily like, I'm sure if I lived down there, yeah, I wouldn't have felt that way. I probably would have felt there were shows going on all the time. There were a lot of bands from South County. Um, and also Providence, they played in Providence. So it was like the ones that I remember are Beltane, Third Age, um, Jetpack. These were bands that I like. I wanted to go to their shows. I really mm-hmm. liked what they were doing musically. Um, they were also getting on a lot of the shows that I would just be going to anyway. Like if Blue Tip was coming through, you know, this big band from DC called Blue Tip, Beltane would be opening up. So I saw Beltane an awful lot. We played with Beltane a few times. Um, but I wanted to like, play with those bands. Okay. But we were like not, I don't know if we, we weren't arty enough, like artsy enough for them or like interesting enough. We just return around, just like to kind of have a good time. We like to write like a straight ahead, really fast, clean punk rock song. Yeah. But we didn't have any spacey breakdowns. Um, there wasn't a lot, lot going on lyrically that it was like, Something that you need to think about a little too much. Like I always political, felt hardcore or political. Yeah, and right. I don't think those those bands were like Beltane and Third Age. I mean, also around that time, Temperance was like enormous. I mean, Temperance was like the biggest. For, I mean, from a straight edge hardcore band standpoint, the Temperance shows were crazy. I know, like. Folks, after like my time in that scene, folks will say verse. The verse shows were crazy. Like I didn't ever get to a verse show, but I was sure as hell at a lot of temperance shows, and I was like, "Damn, these guys are like." I mean, they were like youth crew, straight edge, and Times Expired was another one. Mm-hmm. Now that they were straight edge, but you know, they were another one that like they 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 went right up to. It seemed like they could really sell a room. They could like draw a lot of people to their shows. So when we were going to go back into the studio, I knew that Keith Souza from Jetpack, which I'm not sure if it was Jetpack at the time. It might've been like another band that he was in. I had heard that he was doing some recording, like he was recording Beltane and he was recording third age. And I got in touch with him. He was recording in his mom's basement in Tiverton. And that's where we recorded the I'll smack you seven inch. We did that with Keith in his basement. And I think that record's great. What have you been been up to since since Return Around? Like, what have you been up to more currently, I guess? That yeah. dissolved in 98, 99. And I think I tried to do some things with some of the members, but my life was entirely changing. I got married 
I bought a house. I started working in Boston and I just stopped music for a long, long time. And, um, you know, probably 2000 to 2006 was when I first started doing the Sharks Come Cruising stuff. found some music that made sense to me to start playing again i was searching mm-hmm. for a lot um doing like singer songwriter stuff but it never really felt all that comfortable for me i mean i did some things with caleb in between um but it wasn't until i started playing the sea shanties that like i was like okay here's something i can settle in with and kind of grow old with uh-huh. um but you had that t- type of foresight like yeah at Definitely. that time, I was just like, <laughs> there was no time. way that I was going to jump into being a hard, like a punk rock band. Again. Yeah. Like as fun as that would be, I knew that like, I, first off, I knew that it wasn't going to, it'd be like pulling teeth to get yeah. people to go to shows. Um, but can you talk about how Sharks and Cruising connected with that, that punk scene or just kind of the, the landscape that you saw? of acoustic music being played. Yeah. So. Many of the, the, the folks that I played music with in the late eighties, early, all through the nineties, um, they, as they got older, they started really gravitating towards, I mean, I think some of them were gravitating towards country and blues. Others of them just came out of the box. Like, really enjoying that like more bluesy country sound and I could appreciate what they were doing, but it just didn't do anything for me. I didn't think from a new Englander standpoint, um, I had any business playing it. It just didn't feel authentic to me. And then when I stumbled on the shanties, I was like, okay, I feel like the, I feel like I belong in these songs more than any other type of song. And that was really why I, started doing them first acoustic then with a couple i mean it's, it's funny like this conversation because the guy who played bass with me in sharks at the beginning was seth warden who i went to high school with you know a million years before that um he started playing bass and eddie was playing drums can you just talk a little bit more about like what sharks and cruising is as a band and you know the the sound that was there so for me when i first heard the sea shanties i couldn't think anything other than a sick of it all show like it was like one the, the rowdiness of it or one person singing a line and a group of gruff guys shouting a line back like in the hardcore scene, it would be called a crew call. I mean, that's probably what they called it on the boats for Christ's sake. Like, it was just like, it was the call and response. What was driving me to those early shows was just this interaction of like, yeah, yeah. There was no separation between that band and the audience. Like, mm-hmm. everybody was sick of it all at that show. Like, everybody knew every word. They were screaming along, like, just giving everything that, and, when I heard those songs, I thought the same thing. I said it was really interesting. Like this, 
it's this call and response there. I, when I started the band, I didn't want there to be any difference between the people who are on stage and the people who are watching us. I wanted it to be, I wanted everybody to be Sharks from Cruise. And like, mm-hmm. I wanted to take everybody into the studio, which we did. Yeah, we yeah. brought like a lot of people into yeah. the studio to sing along with us because that was just kind of the, that was the model of the band was, you know, people knew and they sang along with us. Um, from an influence standpoint, I, I didn't want it to be a punk band. I wanted it to be acoustic when I started, but then it quickly evolved. Like once we added drums and bass, I put the electric guitar back on and to be honest, it was the response that we got from the audience. Like people liked that better. They didn't want to see a guy with an acoustic guitar singing sea shanties. They wanted it to be loud and they wanted it to be fast and everybody was drinking beer and they just wanted it to be, they wanted it to be that. And then this guy, James Toomey started playing with us and he brought it like to the next level. (laughs) So, so it was like, you know, for everything that Ed was technical, he was a light hitter on the drums. He was very quick, a lot of rolls and all that. But then when you joined, like you're a heavy hitter, everything like, from that point moving forward, like the band had a very distinct sound, you know, and it was, it was I suddenly found myself back in a punk band. I mean, yeah, okay. I, I, I didn't really ever see it happening, but it did. And I was very happy with what, you know, the results that we were getting, the recordings that we were making, like the way people were being, it was the first time in my life that people were actually coming out to see my band play, which yeah. is like an awfully good feeling. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure that any musician right. would want that. I mean, I mean, there, there were stretches from, you know, nine from, from 2008, 2007, 2008, like all the way up until 2010 where, you know, we played Jake's. Then it would be packed. Uh, we played the penalty box and it would be packed. It got to the point where we were drawing so well. One year I decided I was going to go around and ask who would give us the most money. Like, cause basically my goal was just to, to record. I just wanted to record, mm-hmm. record. So we needed money. And, and I went around to four or five different clubs in Galway Bay and Pawtucket were the ones that offered the most amount of money for us to play. Once a month at their club, we had to do three sets. It was not easy for a year, maybe not even then two years. But people would show up to those shows every single month. They were coming, you know. It was like it was a good deal for everybody. Yeah, um, yeah. Just entertaining people, and <laughs> and that was it. And we and we get and we toured a bunch with with sharks. I mean, that was like to me. That was like I felt very accomplished when we were. The two years we went down to Fest and the one year that we went down to Radfest, I mean, like, I felt like I won the lottery. Like, yeah, I was yeah. still working a day job, you know. I had, like, a, an established adult life, but I also had the opportunity to do this thing that I never thought possible. And that's all you. I mean, that the trips down to Fest are squarely you. You were like send them a CD. I think they would be interested. And I'm like, you're high. You're crazy. Like, Fest is going to listen to this and throw it out the window. And Mm -hmm. instead, 
I ended up getting an email or a phone call from Gainesville, Florida. We want you guys to play. I was like, you're fucking kidding me. Yeah. It was, I mean, I was, I was floored when that happened and to have it happen twice Mm -hmm. and the bands that we met on those tours. Or even more so, not only were we accepted, but I still remember that Cam who worked for No Idea had his like short list of bands right. to check out right. out of the I don't know how many bands play at Fest like two hundred bands that play there and yeah. we were on his short list and right. and I remember I believe it was the first time that we played that like talking about people coming out to see you so I mean not that we can take that much credit but I do remember someone was really excited to see us I think they drove up from like Orlando to Gainesville and they, and we were like again, on their short list. I mean, they were coming yeah. to the fest anyway, but they were like really, they had somehow heard about mm-hmm. us and about the experience and uh, about the cue cards. I mean, you didn't uh, mention too much about yeah, that, about yeah, like yeah. the, uh, the interaction with the audience, but yeah, playing this like Irish pub in, in Gainesville, that was fucking packed. Yeah. And, um, and people were singing along and seemed to know what was going on. It was definitely a highlight in my yeah. musical career. So. Yep. I really, at that point in my life, I mean, there were, there were a couple of things going on with us, like not necessarily Providence related, but it was like a culmination of just, I think the amount of work that had gone into, I mean, everything from those basement shows that I did in high school all the way up through. And then when we started Sharks, I had a totally different perspective on what it was that I wanted to do. I had made relationships with a bunch of people in Providence that like, it's not lost on me that I feel like with any project that I could come up with, I could get a show at a club relatively easily. And that I remember the days as a child, as a kid, just trying to figure out like, how the fuck are people doing this? How are they playing at clubs? Like, how do they make that happen when you have no, you know, if you don't have an older brother or a dad that's in the business, like that is seemingly impossible. Right. Like how, how does that even happen? And it did, it did happen and it continued to happen. And when I started, you know, Sharks Come Cruising, it was like, okay, I'm going to attack this a much different way than I have every other band that I've been in. Like, first off, I don't need to play all the time. Like there's just no reason for it. There aren't enough people in Providence. So like, just be selective about what shows you're going to do and, um, you know, recording has always been very, very important to me. I wanted to make sure that, you know, we got into the studio and recorded as much as we could. Um, right around that same time, 2008, 2009, 2010, we were playing in Springfield. We were playing in, in Maine. We got to open up for Dropkicks, which will forever be the highlight, I think, of my musical career would just be. Not necessarily, I mean, the experience itself playing at House of Blues, opening up for the Dropkick Murphys to that many people was amazing, but it coming on the heels of us having a really shitty time in Springfield with a venue that we were booked at, like the, 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 those events happening the way that they did, like there's a special moment that, that in my heart, like I felt respected. I felt like I, I was getting what I deserved at the House of Blues show, and it came like forty-eight hours after I felt like we were totally taken advantage yeah, of in yeah. Springfield, Massachusetts. So, um, 
so yeah, I mean, this band has been an absolute joy from really, I mean, it's, of course, every band has ups and downs, but like this one for me is just like, it's the easiest thing for me to, to do and I'm having the most fun with it. all so much for listening and a special thank you to mark for doing the show make sure you head over to facebook and instagram at living room utb where you'll be able to see some photos some of the things we talked about including some show flyers and cassettes and actually mark's first drum set and watch for new episodes coming soon including some bonus pods with mark thanks again for listening
with that, Mark, um, what would you say was the best piece of musical advice you've been given? Yeah, this one, like, I, I've, I'm racking my brain. I think why it's difficult for me to answer this is because I have actually done a lot of thinking about this particular, like, <clears throat> this is going to sound horrible, but I don't think that Providence is a very supportive musical community. And like, it like pains my heart to say that because it's my musical community. It's so like, if there's something that is, is not great about it, I should have the ability to change that. And I never really have. Um, but do you think that other music communities are, or is it just the perception of it? I th- I wouldn't, I don't think I would say, like, from a geographic standpoint, that, like, Boston is a tremendously supportive music scene, or, like, Seattle obviously would be a supportive music scene, because look at all this great music. Like, I'm not that naive, but I do think that there are pockets within other, whether it be geographical communities, um, or, like, genres, where there's more support within that scene to lift up others. And I can tell you from like personal experience that when a band that is drawing well in Providence, when you find out that they are moving to Boston or they're dissolving altogether, you think to yourself, not, oh boy, that, well, I, I should say, I'm gonna say this personally, like. Oh, particularly back in the 90s. Oh boy, I'm not necessarily upset that they're breaking up because that means there's more shows that my band could be put on. And that is just a really shitty outlook on things. Like, you should, like, I should have never been um, thinking in terms of, like, well, there's only three bands that can be put on the bill and we're not getting on because there are three other bands that are out there that are, you know, going to get that show. It's just a very competitive and shitty way of looking at things. Like, I would much rather be part of a group that, like, everybody's doing well and, you know, like, kind of lifting each other up. And I just, maybe I've never just had the, um, I'm going to tell you, like, this, the idea of this, didn't even enter into my head until I met Robert Fisher. From Willie Grant Conspiracy. From Willie Grant Conspiracy. Met him through Anthony and Barn Burning. And he was the first person I had ever met in my musical life that was not only concerned about his success, but was concerned about everyone in his circle's success. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know how to... The, one of the first conversations I had with Robert, he was staying here, because Anthony was living with me. Anthony was doing a tour with him, playing mandolin, and like also like opening up for him. Just the two of them were going out. And he said to me, when are you going to get to Europe? And I was like, 
uh, it's on the bucket list, but and he's like, you'd do great in Europe. They would love what Sharks is doing. I can give you some names of some people to contact. You got to get over there. You got to do it. This was the first person ever in my life, ever. Maybe Randy Heen from the living room is another person who, not necessarily that he would have been able to mentor me and. But when we were leaving for our first tour up to, uh, well, not tour, but like we were doing multiple dates, um, not in Rhode Island, Randy gave us all living room t-shirts. And he was like, <laughs> make sure you wear these when you're at the other club. Oh, that's right, yeah. <clears throat> Which was awesome because I got to totally pay that favor back years and years later uh, after I had met and become friends with Gregory <clears throat> at Gregory Rourke. Um he told I, I was wearing the shirt and he told me that he never he like lost his or for some reason he didn't end up with one and I gave him that shirt that Randy gave me I gave that to Gregory on his birthday and it was like one of the greatest things I could have done it's like yeah, dude yeah. you you deserve to have this more than me because Gregory what did sound and was very an int- integral part of what went on at the living room mm-hmm. um so Randy was somebody who like kind of got the mentoring thing, and I think he did his best to, um, you know, to to mentor and, and bring bands up. But Robert was the first person in my my music. I had a lot of other people who I like Anthony. I mean, him and I have been playing shows together forever, and I think we do a good job of balancing each other, like encouraging each other when we need encouragement, um, getting each other shows when we need to get shows. Um, he's probably the closest thing I have to like a musical brother in Providence that like we're both kind of slogging through the same stuff and trying to like get ahead but Robert was the first person I met that like was not only interested in his musical career but the careers of everyone around him and I did learn a lot from from Robert and his uh, his model of how he ran Will of Grand Conspiracy, I would never be able to you know live up to what he had created. But I love the idea of kind of more of a collective as a band rather than um, these are the four people who are in the band. I have a pool of a dozen people who I can pull from, and that yeah. was t- that was totally built off of Robert. Robert like. You know, Willow Grand Conspiracy was basically you read their records, and in the liner notes, it'll say if somebody says they played in Willow Grand Conspiracy, they probably did. Yeah. Because he would roll into towns all over the country, all over the world, and it was people who he was friendly with that he could just have a song, he could have the foundation of the song, and and he could do a show. And I love the idea of it. And I try to live. I try to. I, I try to live sharks that way now. Um, but he, there were a few pieces of advice that Robert gave me that, um, that I'll pass along here. And one was I had a real difficult time deciding whether I was going to release the Kettle Jane record, which was really just a collection of recordings that were done in the basement. And I really suffered because it's not the best work that we've ever done. We it was our first record without you, um, so I was playing percussion with my feet and singing. I was like trying to figure out how to do all that stuff, but the bones of the songs were not bad, and I had trouble just throwing them away. And I struggled with it and struggled with it. Robert had 
the record. And one night, him and I, I don't know if we were texting or if we were talking, but he basically just said, listen, is it an accurate representation of what the band sounded like at the time? And I said, yeah. And he said, release the record. Just get it done. Get it out into the world and move on to the next thing. If it's, wow. if it's accurate and, like, is it perfect? No. Is it clunky? Yes. But if it's an accurate representation of what you're doing at that time, just release it. Get it into the world and then move on to your next thing. And it was one of the better pieces of advice that I had gotten from somebody. That, that record, the book, would not have, I wouldn't have moved forward with it if I didn't have that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he, I mean, he's basically like, if there is a, if there was a mentor in my life musically, I would have to say it was Robert and bouncing ideas off of him and him bouncing ideas off of me. And, you know, obviously I'm extremely thankful to Anthony from Lafradio from Barn Burning for introducing to me, me to this massive force in life yeah, that yeah. like I, I'll never meet any anybody else like him mm-hmm. you know so so that was the piece of advice anybody had given me right yeah, yeah. well and, but, like looking at your decades long careers of playing in punk bands and, and and touring and putting out records I mean you had mentioned that earlier of just you know everything essentially everything that you've done has been self-released and you know, from cassettes to seven inches to vinyl records. I mean, you've done a lot. Uh, is there, um, you know, a, a piece of advice that you'd give? To I, I think I think there's probably multiple. One, first and foremost, you have to like the people you're playing with. You have to like genuinely like the individuals you're playing music with. And it's better when you can love them. Like when, like I love you as a person and that makes me want to play music with you. I love Eric. I love Michael. Like, you know, obviously I love my wife. Um, but, <laughs> Don't forget your wife. <laughs> but, but when you can get into a situation where you're playing with music, when you're playing with mu- music with people who you like, let's just start there. Like people who don't anger you or make you mad or stress you out like if you can find that situation that is gold because everything that comes out of that relationship it doesn't matter the technical ability of whoever it is that you're playing with is going to matter much less you can have the greatest guitar player in the world if you don't like that person whatever project it is that you're doing it's just not it's never going to it's never going to be magical Right. So like I think starting from a place of like liking the f- individuals you're collaborating with, I think is really, really important. That being said, my second piece of advice would be learn how to play your instrument and learn how to write a song. Because if there's one thing that I regret, it's that when I first started playing music in high school, I had never played an instrument. I didn't know how to read music. I'm not saying that you have to go out and be classically trained. But I do think you have to learn just like the anatomy of the instrument, um, what chords go together. Like in hindsight, I would have done a lot more learning other people's songs and how a song gets put together. I eventually got there in my life, but it took me way longer than it needed to. 
Like yeah. the 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 songwriting process, the theory of what chords go together, of that part of it only came through trial and error and trial and error and years of just loving to perform but not really knowing what makes a song a song. Mm -hmm. And I think with a little bit of technical training, it goes an awful long way. And I also, with that, I'll also say that I think it is a, uh, it is a balance, a because there are individuals who learn how to play their instrument and they're very technical trained, but they can't write a song worth a shit because they are following whatever rules there are. The reason why I love music and why I love playing music and why it's exciting for me is because I never really learned the rules. So, like, I don't think Fugazi learned the rules either. Like, I think they came from this world of, you know, they... I mean, and maybe it's weird that I throw them out as a band, but their sound is unlike anything else, and it's because they didn't know the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus, end. Yeah, pattern that, that needs to be done. Maybe a song it. is just a, a three-note riff, and yeah. then it's done. And yeah. that isn't how a song typically goes, but that's how that song goes. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and I think... There's this balance between learning your instrument enough that you can kind of be creative but also be competent and not learning it so much that you are looking to fit every song into a box to say this is how that song goes. Like somewhere in there is a dance that I think the bands that are really good at what they do, they've, they've hit it. They've kind of figured out what to do. Well, thank you so much, Mark. I appreciate you doing this this uh, interview with me it's been it's been a lot of fun so thank you all right
All right, we are here with Mark Lambert. We're going to try a little segment called RI5. So we got five quick questions for you, Mark. As a native Rhode Islander, what is your favorite Rhode Island pizza? Nice slice. All right. What is your favorite Rhode Island drink? Narragansett Autocrat Coffee Milk Stout. All right. What is your favorite Rhode Island city, town, neighborhood, like favorite favorite place, I guess? Right where I live, the east side of Providence. All right. Who is your favorite Rhode Island personality? Man. I think i got to take a pass on that one. Yeah. I, I, I have no... I don't know what constitutes a personality. Just someone that... It could be John O'Hurley from Seinfeld or... Uh, Buddy Cianci, newscaster, David Cicilline. <laughs> Anyone that, that just, uh, you know, is is a, a known person around Rhode Island. It could be uh, Mike Delahante. I don't know, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know, like, uh, when he was alive, I think, I, I'd say Randy Heen, he was definitely, uh, he was a p- pretty pretty big Rhode Island personality. Um, you know they, they, they're friends of mine, so I, I feel weird naming them. But uh, but Aaron Janig at the Parlor and uh, and Gregory, I don't know if you'd call them personalities, but certainly in the music scene, everybody knows who they are. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, Aaron in particular, I think is pretty Rhode Island, <laughs> and then of course John DeFusco, uh, who was at Askew. Uh, ran Firehouse for a long time. Um, he is he's a pretty big Rhode Island personality. Nice. And do you have a favorite Rhode Island author? Or you can even extend that to a, a book. Yeah, so not necessarily a Rhode Island author, but um, my creative writing, my advisor at Rhode Island College was Tom Cobb, who wrote Crazy Heart, which is a fantastic book but then turned into a movie uh they uh jeff bridges is that his name i think that might be that it's a it was loosely based off the the life of willie nelson like a more of a washed up willie nelson um and tom cobb was my uh he was my advisor my writing advisor so a lot of his advice about writing still falls in with me musically and he he had taught at uh rhode island college i don't think he was originally Definitely was not originally a Rhode Islander, but he, you know, he, I think he's from, he might be retired now, but so author wise, yeah. Perfect. Thanks so much, Mark. You got it.